Well, brethren, I invite you to open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as we continue to go through our series through the book of 1 Corinthians and as we come to kind of the central aspect of our worship. All of the songs and the readings kind of lead up to this, to this point where we devote ourselves to hearing God's Word and listening to Him speak and and receiving His instruction that in light of the Gospel, we may give ourselves in obedience to our great God, as we just sang. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, we're going to be covering verses 1-5 through 5, um, this morning. And just to remind you of the context, up to this point in the letter, Paul's been focused on addressing the divisions and the worldly wisdom that has kind of wreaked havoc in the life of this church. And here, though, he kind of transitions. In this chapter, he talks specifically about how this church, how they were treating him, and how they were treating their other leaders and pastors in the congregation. In other words, we might say this, that this church had a fascination with worldly wisdom, and they had turned against one another in these divisions, but it also led them to turn against Paul, the apostle, the one that planted the church, their leader, their pastor in a certain respect. And so Paul writes in this chapter to correct and instruct them on what true church leadership looks like in God's economy. And brethren, I think this is really important and timely for us in the life of our church. We need additional elders and deacons. We are actually right now in the process of an exa- examining um, in order to put forward an additional elder and deacon in our church. So we need as well a right understanding, a biblical understanding of church leadership and the role that that plays in the unity of the church, of course, in the fulfilling of the Great Commission. So 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. Let's listen and let's hear. God Himself speak in our midst. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, we ask again, Lord, that you would glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our midst and through your word this morning. Father, we pray that you would kind of take us by the hand, lead us by the heart, and lead us to our Savior, that we may listen and hear and follow the voice of our shepherd. Create in us, Lord, a heart of love for our God. Mold and shape us by your word, we pray in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 
One way in which we've approached the study of this book is that we haven't just considered what is addressed, but we've also paid careful attention to how it is addressed. How does the Holy Spirit, writing through the Apostle Paul, address and correct the errors, all the errors that are found in this church? I think when we approach it this way, I think we find kind of the marks of a good teacher or the marks of a good pastor. Paul doesn't just solve the problems in the church for them. He's not a consultant who drops in and shakes everything up, gives his opinion on things. Neither does Paul just come and and lay down the law and say, all right, do this and don't do this. Stop this and start doing this. Rather, if we look at how he addresses these errors, we can see how Paul labors to change their perspective. He he wants to lead them by the hand, as it were, so that they see the error for themselves, and they thus willingly change in light of the theological, the greater, grander truths of God and God's Word. It's kind of related to that old saying, where you can give a hungry man a fish, or you can teach him how to fish for himself. A faithful pastor, a faithful counselor, a faithful parent is going to do just that. Not just solve issues and say do this and don't do this, but to teach those under their care to think rightly and think for themselves and thus willingly and joyfully pursue the right course of action. Well, what Paul does here... Kind of what we strive for, if you've ever heard us say that here at CRBC, we are committed to approaching the Scriptures theologically. We approach the Scriptures theologically knowing that the Bible isn't just a code of ethics telling us how to live. That the Bible isn't just a, a law book. Just tell me what to do. Tell me how to obey. Give me the written code so that I don't have to pray, so that I don't have to think, so that I don't have to decide for myself. Another pitfall of this as well, even worse, is that we can idolize leaders. And just give me a pastor, give me a leader to just tell me what to do. Right? He can decide all the right answers for me. All the rules for me. Well, in contrast to this, brethren, the Scriptures do tell us what to do, but more importantly, it also gives us new eyes and new perspective in order that we might see and apply truth to all of life on our own, in a sense. Brother, this is really important when we come to 1 Corinthians. If we don't see how uh, Paul argues as he does, we might think that a lot of this really doesn't apply to us. I mean, we don't have this kind of rivalry in our church, hopefully. We're not torn into factions. We're not infatuated with worldly wisdom. We might look and say, even later in the chapter, we don't abuse spiritual gifts. We don't abuse the Lord's Supper. Well, if we don't approach Scripture theologically, we won't see how that instruction applies to us even if we don't have the exact problem going on in our midst. This is what it means to approach Scripture theologically because the theology always applies. The theology is something we all need to always hear and be reminded of. Now, I mention all this because in the first four chapters, Paul has spoken a great deal about church leadership. We've seen that some in the church undervalue ministers. 
right? They saw themselves as equipped and to determine what was best for them and what they needed to hear or what style or personality their pastor should have. We also see those in this, in this church who overvalued ministers. Overvalued to the point where they were untouchable. My favorite guy, what he says is the gospel and everybody else is wrong. But after hinting at this and kind of you know, working through this kind of generally in the first four chapters, here we find that Paul himself was a target of a lot of this as well. You know, earlier he said people were saying, I'm for Apollos or I'm for Peter. But, but clearly right here in this chapter we see that many of them were decidedly anti-Paul. Corinthians were passing judgment on him. They were unfairly critical and dismissive of him. They were insubordinate to his spiritual authority over them. And tracing together kind of why this is, no doubt they criticized him uh, for making the cross the center of his preaching and teaching. They criticized him because, as he said earlier, that his bodily presence among them was weak and with much trembling. He wasn't a really impressive guy. He didn't have like a pulpit presence, we might say. They criticized him because they looked at his doctrine as milk. Simplistic, unimpressive. We need bigger and better things. He didn't meet their criteria, and so clearly, even though he labored among them for many years, they had now turned and become infatuated with other leaders, and they had kind of, Paul, we don't need you anymore, and we don't want to listen to what you have to say. I can't help but think that how this is still common in our day. How we're all susceptible to it in many ways. You just look at the numbers sometimes. You know, the, the, in American evangelicalism, the average tenure of a pastor in one congregation is less than five years before he either quits or he moves on to another church. On average, people in the pew switch churches about every three to four years in American evangelicalism. And we think about this, we think, you know how at first, uh, a, a pastor's preaching and ministry can be amazing. Right? Here's a new voice. Here's a new perspective. Here's a new personality. Here's a new take on things. Here's a new way of communicating things. And, and it can be fresh and it can be exciting and, and you learn new stuff. But, but after a while, you kind of get tired of hearing him. You kind of see his flaws, his weaknesses. You kind of think, you know what, I've, I've heard everything this guy has to say. I need something better. I need something deeper. I need something different. I've heard his illustrations. I know how he thinks. I know what's important to him. I keep, I'm tired of hearing the same thing over and over again. And so the common practice is the congregant either moves to another church or the pastor looking for a fresh start, maybe where people are excited about him again, chooses to move on as well. I think this gives us a picture of what's going on here. Paul labored for years among them, but now he was on the wrong side of their evaluations. They had had enough of him. They had had enough of his doctrine, enough of his ministry. And so he writes very forcefully. And, and I, I will say, the latter, latter part of this chapter, he is, he is firm. He writes to address their misconceptions about leadership and about ministry. But he doesn't just tell them, do this and don't do this. He writes to give them a greater, better right 
theological perspective. He calls them to put on the mind of Christ. He calls them to look at church leadership and ministry through the lens of Christ and the day of judgment. And that's why I've entitled this message an eschatological perspective on church ministry. Looking at leadership and ministry in the church through the lens of the day of judgment. So, let's break this down and consider what Paul says here. And might I add as well, although he speaks most directly about church leadership, this is very applicable to other areas of life as well. Not just leadership and church ministry. It's very practical, and I hope to show you that from this passage too. But to organize our thoughts, let's, um, let's, let's break them down under three points today. Uh, commission, criteria, and conduct. Commission, criteria, and conduct. If we want to understand Christian leadership and ministry, we need, we need to first understand the commission. The commission of leaders. So look again at verse 1. Paul writes, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. If we are to understand Christian ministry in the place of, and role of leaders in the church, we need to understand who a leader is and what he's been called to do. This is something that the Corinthians got wrong. That's why they were torn up into various factions regarding church leadership. And so Paul writes and says, this is how you should think of leadership. This is how you should regard us. This is how you should understand what leaders are in the church. And we might frame it this way. What is a church leader? What is a pastor? I'm sure it doesn't surprise you that there's a mountain of different answers we could probably give or that are popular in our day to that question. What is a pastor? And we see all sorts of different models in our day in churches all around us. We have the pastor as the CEO. He runs the church like a business from the boardroom. We have the pastor as the community organizer who oversees the events and programs and fellowships of the church. We have the pastor as a lecturer or the life guru, right? He's just there to, to teach and give sermons and nobody actually has access to him. We have the pastor as a celebrity, the popular name in the face, right? The image of the church so to gather people around him. We have the pastor as the counselor and the therapist, where public teaching and preaching take a back seat to really his obligations to the people in private. We have all these different models in, in our day of, of what a pastor is and what a pastor does. But first and foremost, Paul says, in God's economy, a pastor is a servant and a steward. The word servant here is a general term. It means helper or assistant. Someone in a position of service. Uh, the word steward is more specific, and it's particularly related to the household. Um, the better way of uh, interpreting this might be household manager or estate manager. This is someone who's still a servant, someone who's still a subordinate, but they have a measure of authority and responsibility over the household to faithfully manage the resources therein. 
But that's really kind of the key there. Ser- servants and stewards, they don't own anything. They're not lords. They're not masters. They're not owners. They, they have this real authority in the household, but this authority, authority is always bound and, 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 and structured by uh, the guidelines set by the master. What then are the instructions given by the master of the household? What is the commission? Paul says, stewards of the mysteries of God. Brethren, this really, I think, gets at the heart of what pastoral ministry is all about. We know that in the church there are a variety of different leaders, um, a variety of different gifts, a variety of different people who all work together to build up the body of Christ, and, and everyone has their particular gift and their particular role. Well, well, this is the specific commission of, of pastors stewarding the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God is kind of a shorthand for the gospel. The gospel is often spoken of as a mystery because it was long hidden in the Old Testament and fully and finally revealed with Christ in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. The gospel is spoken of as a mystery as well because it's undiscoverable to human reason. It can't be grasped or received on the basis of intellect and human reason. The Holy Spirit must enliven. The Holy Spirit must regenerate and give new life in order to believe and receive the gospel. The gospel is spoken of as a mystery as well because it's the full and final eschatological reality. Remember the Corinthians, they thought, well, I know the gospel, but I need something greater, something deeper, something higher. This this wisdom that goes beyond the gospel. Well, the gospel is the greatest and the deepest and the highest wisdom. It is that that end-time consummated reality. It's called in other places the eternal gospel. In the gospel contains the ultimate truth for who God is and His plan of redemption for the world. So to be a steward of the mysteries of God is one who in and by the aid of the Holy Spirit labors to reveal and proclaim and administer the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a pastor's highest duty and primary calling. And all of the other popular opinions and preferences on what a pastor is should fall by the wayside. Again, this is why theology is important. A faithful pastor is called to primarily teach and correct and instruct on things theological. That's what it means to steward the mysteries of God. To to dive deep. To dig out those precious truths of God's Word and faithfully deliver them to God's people so that they receive them and they live in light of them. So Paul starts right here and says, you need to understand a pastor's commission. Because you're looking at it all the wrong way and thus tearing yourself to pieces with factions and divisions. A pastor is a servant who's called to make the eternal gospel known that God's people might live it out. But secondly, on the heels of this, we see criteria. The commission 
but also the criteria. What do I mean by criteria? I mean by what criteria is a leader in Christ's church to be evaluated on this commission? By what criteria do we evaluate leaders and their calling to steward the mysteries of God? Well, look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Part of stewardship is the expectation that they will be found faithful by the one who has entrusted them into, um, with, with care. It's required of this. They were required to be found faithful. So ministers and church leaders, the ultimate criteria of evaluation is, do they faithfully steward the mysteries of God? Paul spoke of this idea elsewhere. Um, when he was leaving the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, if you recall, a very moving scene. Paul tells them, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's one way of him saying, I was faithful in my stewardship of the mysteries of God to you. So the requirement of ministers to be found faithful is absolute fidelity to the gospel. To teach it, to preach it, to model it, to instruct it. Not to neglect it. Not to neglect to give it. Not to substitute it for something else seemingly more desirable. Not to adulterate it by mixing it with other things. Things that undermine its centrality or its truth. Faithfulness to steward that gospel is the criteria for pastors and leaders in Christ's church. Of course, you know what this means is that being well-liked is not the primary goal. It means that building the biggest church or having the biggest budget is not the primary goal. It means that preaching to the so-called felt needs of the congregations so that they hear what they want to hear or what they think they need to hear or what makes them feel good and inspired or whatever is not ultimately the goal. The commission and the criteria center upon is the gospel faithfully, clearly, persistently proclaimed and administered. This is the criteria that the Corinthians had thrown off because they prized the form of preaching above the content. They esteemed prestige in their leaders as more important than humility. They looked for powerful leaders instead of servant leaders. They valued reputation in the eyes of others, in the eyes of the community, as more important than personal integrity. And this is what had led them to turn against the Apostle Paul. And they had begun to criticize him. So given this criteria, how does Paul respond to that criticism? Well, look at 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. The question here is ultimately, who determines whether a minister 
is faithful as a steward in God's household? That's the question. Who determines that? The idea of being judged here uh, refers to a kind of examination. Paul was on trial, as it were. They were bringing accusations and evidence against him. Uh, They were critical against the Apostle Paul. And so he's hearing of this, and he's receiving this, and he responds, and he basically says, you know what, I really don't take your criticisms that seriously. Even the criticisms of a group of people. They don't really matter to me. Now Paul isn't being flippant. He's not being arrogant here. He's not being stubborn. He's just saying, don't you know that really it's the Lord's judgment that ultimately matters? I don't even judge myself, he says. In other words, I have a clean conscience that I have fulfilled my duties as a minister, but even that, a clean conscience isn't everything. Because a conscience can be misinformed. A conscience can be wrong. A conscience can lead us in dangerous directions. So he's simply saying, whether it's you, or whether it's this group, or whether it's me judging my work, it's really irrelevant in the grand scheme of things because what matters is what my master says. <clears throat> Elsewhere he wrote in Galatians 1.10, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still seeking to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. A pastor cannot be out to win a popularity contest. A pastor cannot spend all his time worrying about what people think or how to make them happy. Trust me when I say that this is a a common temptation, especially to younger men uh, first entering ministry. (coughs) The fear of man can be strong. And we can think we're loving people when in fact, actually, we're just trying to appease them. (coughs) Excuse me. What Paul is doing, he's lifting our eyes up to the ultimate judge. And he's calling the church to remember that that the ultimate judge is the one that truly determines a minister's fidelity. They were judging Paul unfairly. They weren't judging him on the basis of fidelity to the gospel. They weren't judging him on the basis of the master's commission. They were judging him based upon other things, personal things. And and not only that, but they were judging him based upon what they perceived to be hidden motives. As if they could see the intentions and purposes of his heart toward them. Brethren, again, isn't this really common in our day? It's a common root of a lot of the, the factionalism and the preference for leaders in our day. How easily we, we, we can criticize church leaders on things like their personality, their methodology, their preaching style, their teaching style, their counseling style, decisions that we don't agree with, or we criticize them based, or, or huddle around them based upon popularity, or our own preferences of what we value in the pastorate, or motives or intentions that we think that we can see. Now, hang with me, because I'm not, I'm not setting the pastor, and certainly not myself, above criticism or, judge, or being judged. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But ultimately, right here, we need to acknowledge that Paul at least says, I don't take those things seriously. If you're judging me based upon criteria outside of my commission to steward the mysteries of God, that means very little to me. 
I don't even make my own evaluation on those things as ultimate because it's my master who can see even what I can't see. Right? Hebrews 4, we read earlier. I've called to be faithful to his commission and it's his verdict at the last day that really matters. Only the master of the house to whom the ministers are accountable to can properly evaluate and hand down the verdict. So this then is the criteria for Christian leaders and ministers and pastors. By setting up a false criteria, judging Paul and the other leaders by the wrong standard, judging by what they couldn't properly see and evaluate, had led to their divisions and their rivalry. So this is the criteria, and and we need to stop, you know, acknowledging this, but also recognizing You know, this does raise some interesting questions. How do we evaluate ministers? Not only this, but doesn't this sound like it can be very easily abused by an authoritarian pastor? Your judgment of me means little. That that can be very condescending. That can be abusive. Well, to answer this, I think we we need to keep on reading. And we need to think through this a little bit deeper. So, commission, criteria. Third and finally, we have conduct. Conduct. What I mean by conduct is that in light of the commission and criteria, what are we called to do? How are we called to respond to this commission and criteria? Well, this is where he drops an imperative, an instruction in verse 5. Therefore, what's the command? Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. The conduct Paul calls for here is do not pronounce judgment. Don't judge church leaders and ministers before the time. It is the master's house. It is the master's commission. It is the master's criteria. Thus, your conduct is judge not, lest you be judged, as it were. God will deal with ministers accordingly. But again, what does this mean? Does this mean that ministers are off limits from examination or judgment by the church? Does this mean that ministers are to be so thick-skinned that they can totally ignore all criticism? And just respond to it by saying, ah, that's a really small thing to me. That means nothing to me. Well, hear me when I say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Let me be clear. The church has the right. The church has the authority. The church has the duty to evaluate and judge their ministers. Both their life and their doctrine. This passage does not make the pastor untouchable. This passage does not open the door to authoritarianism where he can never be challenged. Those who use this passage in that way are twisting and abusing Scripture. And they only have their their selves and their own will and their own ways in mind. An elder must be apt to teach, the Scriptures say. This is determined by the judgment of the church. An elder must possess a life of godly gifts and qualities as outlined in Scripture. This, too, is to be determined by the judgment of the church, where at any time 
he could fail to meet that mark. Not only this, but don't we know that ministers, as much as anyone else, are prone to fall into sin? And they're prone to weakness? And they're prone to error? And it's part of the church's job to to help them through times like that? To correct them? To uh, rebuke them in such cases? Or even remove them if necessary? So don't read this as if Paul is saying, you know, for ministers, only God can judge me. Never pass judgment on me. However, this does kind of put things in its proper perspective. I do believe this passage and the surrounding context make it clear it does forbid unfair judgment or criticism. It forbids fault-finding, criticism without a measure of forbearance or patience. It forbids criticism that elevates style over substance or personality over faithfulness. It forbids criticism that stems from factionalism, a group of people out to get the pastor just because they don't like him for whatever reason. It forbids criticism of gossip or slander where the full story really isn't known or motives or attitudes or subjective preferences are the standard of judgment. It forbids criticism that is vague and unspecific not rooted in behavior that is clearly evident and seen by all and condemned by Scripture. I believe it forbids criticism based upon emotion or feelings. I don't like the way he makes me feel. I don't walk away from his sermons happy or inspired. This kind of fuzzy, emotional, subjective feelings or impressions that again aren't based upon fact. It forbids criticism based upon results. Well, the church hasn't grown. His ministry doesn't produce the kind of fruit that I value and look for. So hear me when I say the church absolutely has a duty to judge sin and the pastor has a duty to perpetually subject his life and doctrine to the judgment of the church and that he might submit to the authority of the church in that way. But at the same time, 1 Timothy 5.19, do not admit a charge, do not admit an accusation against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Criticism and judgment of an elder when he sins is absolutely necessary for the health of the church and the purity of the body of Christ. But it must be clearly based upon the Word of God and accompanied by the necessary evidence of fact. This is why gossip and slander and disgruntledness and complaining and defamation, all of these things toward an elder must be put away. And this is what Paul means when he says, don't judge before the Lord comes. You don't know if it's not based upon fact and it's not based upon His commission, then then you need to be careful. Because God is the master of the house. You can't see this man's heart. You can't see my heart, Paul says. But God will bring that to light at the last day. Jesus says the same to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2.23. He says, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your deeds. This is an eschatological perspective. This is seeing Christ as the head of the church ultimately and the chief shepherd. 
And this is what I mean when I say, brethren, that that this passage gives us an eschatological perspective on leadership and on ministry. One of the battles battles we constantly face in life as Christians is, is evaluating things from a worldly rather than a heavenly perspective. You know, if you've come to our Wednesday night Bible study through 1 Peter, that's a lot of what he's writing. You know, he's writing to Christians who are being persecuted and they're suffering. And he constantly calls them to look upward, to look heavenly, to look through things through the lens of Christ and the gospel rather than through the lens of their present and very difficult circumstances. Well, this is, this is the same thing applied to the church. Which is why the Corinthians were struggling with worldly wisdom. They were evaluating the church based upon what they could see and evaluate in their own understanding according to the norms of this world. And that's why we see this all around in our day, right? The, 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 the successful businessman, pastor, the entrepreneur, the pastor is expected to be a, a, a therapist or a motivational speaker or a, a professor or a doting grandfather maybe. Like We have all these ideas of what a pastor is rather than letting the Scriptures model, taking Scriptures as our model, seeing the commission that God has laid forth, going with the Word of God, trusting the Word and and, and the, uh, the shepherding of Jesus Christ as head of the church. When we leave that off, No wonder the church is torn in various factions and rivalries. And so this is why Paul writes. This is what Paul turns to to kind of get them this theological, eschatological perspective. Look to the last day. Look to the ultimate Lord. Be patient. Exercise self-control. Don't overvalue ministers. Don't undervalue ministers. Receive their ministry. Respect them in the Lord. But keep your eyes on Christ, ultimately. When we undervalue or overvalue ministers, our eyes are not on Christ. Keep our eyes on Christ, and God will make it right in the end. And when we keep our eyes on Christ, we won't have that time or care to focus and be caught up in all of our personal preferences for what a pastor or a leader should be, or even their weaknesses that at times just get under our skin a little bit. Because pastors are sinful humans as well. Keep your eyes on Christ. See Him. And to the salvation of your souls, receive the stewardship of the ministry of the Gospel. And that ultimately is what binds the church up. Part of what binds the church up in harmony and unity. But brethren, as as we conclude here, one last thing I want to show you I, want to, I spoke earlier about how the theological truths here don't just concern how we evaluate pastors and leaders. Um, there is a truth here that really spills over into the rest of life as well. No matter where you are or what God has called you to. And I think that's found at the end of verse 5 where Paul says in this conclusion, conclusion of this argument, then each one will receive his commendation from God. You know, given the context about judgment and revealing hidden motives and stuff, wouldn't we expect this passage to say that 
At the last day, each minister will receive their correction or rebuke from God. But instead, Paul makes two switches here. First, I believe he opens it up to everyone, not just ministers. Each one. This is a truth that applies to everybody, not just pastors. But then also, instead of saying correction or rebuke, he says, we will receive his commendation from God. I think what D.A. Carson wrote here is particularly insightful and encouraging. He said, by concluding this way, he shows that God judges less sternly than the self-appointed judges in that church. Isn't that an amazing thing? If that is indeed what Paul is saying, which I believe he is saying. How we can judge other believers more harshly than God judges us. Does that not strike a note of fear as well, lest we fall in that sin? It's almost as if Paul concludes this by saying, you know what? Christ covers our sin and our weaknesses, so at the day of the judgment, those will be passed over. What will be brought to the light is what is commendable. And I believe that is true. At the last judgment, your sins are not going to be broadcast before the world. But the fruit, the good, the love, the obedience will be broadcast before the Lord, before the world. And you will receive your reward. That is the kind of love and mercy and compassion and favor that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's true for ministers as well. And it's true for you. As you work to love those in the church, to love your neighbor, to further the glory of God, you can have confidence, not fear, that at the day of judgment, God's not going to bring up all of your flaws and all of your sins and all of your weaknesses. What is going to rise to the surface for everyone to see, for the Lord to see, so that He gets the glory is the good and obedience and faithfulness that you have offered out of love for your God. That's an eschatological perspective. And that shields not only the pastor from unfair criticism, but it should shield you from unfair criticism as well. And it shields you because in the Gospel, Jesus Christ obeyed and fulfilled to the fullest the law. And you're placed in this He gives you. And in the Gospel, all of your sin and weakness and flaws and and errors are covered by the blood of Christ and they're washed away and they're put as far as the east is from the west. And in the Gospel, Christ lived, He died, He rose, and He intercedes for you. And you are ruling and reigning with Him seated in the heavenly places. And one day, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Far from you being judged, you actually, in Christ, are going to judge the world. That's the promise of the Gospel. And that's our hope. And that's our joy. And that's how we can apply this to the church and thus not be torn by faction over leaderships, but we can apply this to the Christian life as well and properly love and show compassion and mercy and humility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. All for the glory of God, the good of the church, and the furtherance of the Gospel. Amen. Well, may God give us
the faith and the grace to see, hear, and receive these things. Let's pray.